This is episode 267 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can support our show, contribute directly to programming, and access over 150 additional episodes of our show not available on public listening platforms, all from patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Joyce Hampton, and I'm a fellow of the Huguenot Society. Another great method of studying the life of William Shakespeare would include listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. The assembly was, I think it's fair to say, far from united and various aspects of doctrine, worship, uh, discipline, church government. But without going into immense detail, it's this body that eventually produces the Westminster Confession, as well as a, a directory for worship and catechisms. The Confession has a very short shelf life in England, uh, but it's adopted in Scotland in 1647 and then readopted in 1690. And it becomes the doctrinal standard of the Church of Scotland, the most dissenting Presbyterian churches, and in fact, it remains a key reference point for many Presbyterian churches today. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Shakespeare mentions covenants drawn betweens in Cymbeline and mentions covenants again in Henry VI when the king is negotiating a marriage to Lady Margaret. And then it comes up further in both Richard II and in Taming of the Shrew. Covenants were a key player in the Protestant Reformation that was going on in Shakespeare's lifetime, but it was also a word that could mean to promise or to form a formal contract. The history of the time period tells us that Swiss Reformed theologian Johannes Osio Clempadius from 1584 to 1531, and forgive my pronunciation of the Swiss name there, but he was teaching in the 1520s and would later become known as the Covenant of Redemption. A few years later, Heinrich Bullinger published the first Protestant book devoted to explaining the Covenant of Grace. And of course, there's John Calvin, who died the year Shakespeare was born, writing about the Covenant of Redemption, the Covenant of Works, and the Covenant of Grace. All of these concepts heavily influenced not only the Church of England, but also the Kirk, the Church of Scotland, in defining what it meant to be Protestant. In 1560, the Scottish Parliament designated the Kirk as the sole form of religion in Scotland and adopted the Scots Confession, rejecting Catholic teaching and practices. James VI argued that the king was also head of the church, governing through bishops appointed by himself. And in 1603, when he became king of England, he also became head of the Church of England. Eventually, Scotland would adopt what's known as the National Covenant, springing from different perspectives on who held ultimate authority over the church. And this National Covenant in incorporated the text of another famous covenant that was drafted when Shakespeare was just 17 years old, known as the Negative Confession. It was drafted up in 1581. 
The authors of the negative confession used pieces from the 16th century covenant ideas involving familiar actions and assigned gestures as part of the ritual of what it meant to take a covenant. Our guest this week is an expert on the history of 16th century covenanting, and we are delighted to welcome Neil McIntyre to the show to help us unpack the religious history that was finding its feet during Shakespeare's lifetime, as well as to help us understand what Shakespeare would have been referring to or what his audience would have expected to see when they heard and saw ideas of covenanting appearing in plays like Henry VI and Cymbeline. Dr. Neil McIntyre is a knowledge exchange associate in the College of Arts, affiliate in theology and religious studies, and former lecturer in Scottish history at the University of Glasgow. He is the co-editor of Scotland and the Wider World, guest editor for the Scottish Historical Review special issue Covenants and Covenanting from 2020, and contributor to the National Covenant 1638 to 1689, edited by Chris Langley. His most recent publication considers the development and export of ideas on rights of self-defense, resistance, and arms bearing by Scottish Presbyterians to British North America in new histories of gun rights and regulation. As a historian, he is particularly interested in the role that religion has to play in shaping political and legal thought, party politics, and popular political engagement in both Scotland and beyond. Hello, Neil. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hi, thanks for having me. In 1560, so just four years before Shakespeare was born, the Scottish Parliament designated the Kirk as the sole form of religion in Scotland and adopted the Scots Confession, which rejected many Catholic practices. How did this situation go down in England when James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England in 1603? Was there a conflict between the Kirk and the Church of England? Okay, that's quite a complex uh, opening question. Um, I think I would start by maybe summarising the reformations in England and Scotland, and then maybe talk a bit about the 16th century political context, and then we can fast forward to the Union of Crowns in 1603. To be as brief as I can, Henry VIII of England, he famously breaks from Rome in 1534 and establishes himself as supreme head of the Church of England. Uh, However, uh, a reformation is not just an event, but it's a a process. So this continues under his son, Edward VI and Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset and Lord Protector, until the young Edward's death in 1553 when Henry's daughter Mary becomes queen and then leads a a Catholic counter-reformation until her own death in 1558. Mary is succeeded by her half-sister Elizabeth, whose church settlement then re-establishes the royal supremacy, uh, restores the Book of Common Prayers, the official liturgy, and produces the 39 articles. And these become the, the doctrinal standards of the Church of England. So from 1534, that Anglo-Scottish boundary becomes a, a confessional border, and this leads to a series of attempts by Henry and then later Somerset to secure uh, a kind of quote-unquote Protestant British Empire uh, by either persuading or coercing the Scots. Uh, this policy is picked up again by Elizabeth, uh, whose support of a Protestant Reformation in Scotland is critical to its eventual success. Scotland in the late 1550s is, meanwhile, ruled by someone uh, known as Mary of Guise, a uh, widow of James V and mother to Mary, Queen of Scots. To kind of fast forward, the, the campaign for the form is led by a group of nobles known as the Lords of the Congregation and the preacher, spokesperson and propagandist John Knox. 
um, and he'd been living in exile in Geneva and later joined with exiled English Protestants at Frankfurt. So basically legislation is passed by the Scottish Parliament in 1560 that although officially Protestant, the young Mary Queen of Scots is actually deposed in 1567, the civil war continues to 1573 and the process of reform actually takes several decades to work out in practice. I think it's crucial to note at this point that while the Reformation in England had been led by its rulers, in Scotland it's been carried out in defiance of the Crown. So with all this in mind, we can come back to your question about 1603, uh, which is when James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England and Ireland. Uh, So to be brief, James is very keen to unite the separate churches of England and Scotland as part of his wider ambition of achieving uniformity between the kingdoms and ruling as a British emperor, not dissimilar to the way that Henry VIII had wanted to. But the circumstances behind the establishment of the national churches and their quite different kind of trajectories makes this quite tricky. There was also limited support on either side of the border to pursue this type of project. On the one hand, you had particularly zealous or patriotic Protestant Scots believing that their church was, quote unquote, the best reformed in Europe. And the English church was but half reformed, while some church leaders in England were quite concerned with the the Presbyterian or perhaps Puritan flavour of the Church of Scotland. So to answer the question, while there wasn't an open conflict between the churches at the turn of the 17th century, their common Protestantism uh, didn't provide the foundations for an especially amicable relationship. Definitely some disagreements and, and tension happening between the, the two groups there. Over over all of the changes that are taking place, it, it makes sense when you think about how complicated everything was at that time. Absolutely. I wonder about the word covenant. Was it synonymous with religious law and were covenants always taken for religious reasons? I, I don't know if I'd say that covenants were strictly synonymous with the term religious law. But I do think you're absolutely right to say that there was both a theological and legal dimensions to them. They were probably associated most famously with Old Testament Israel, where there were numerous examples of corporate or collective covenanting by the Israelites. In other words, that's their entering into these sort of tripartite agreements between themselves, God and their kings to live and worship according to God's commands. Um, Returning to the the early modern period that we're talking about, a belief does develop among both English and Scottish Protestants that their nation, by embracing the Reformation and seeking to establish the so-called true religion, according to the word of God, uh, had replaced the Israelites as God's chosen people. So we heard about John Knox earlier. Well, he, for example, argues that once a nation had officially established the true religion, it was now in a covenant with God. And thus any type of backsliding from this covenant would incur divine wrath in the nation. Uh, And interestingly, in Scotland, the lords of the congregation I mentioned, they actually adapt this medieval practice of banding for mutual defence and the building of alliances. And they adapt this to the ends of Protestant reform. And they actually style these bands as covenants. And the first of these was actually signed in 1557 by leading evangelicals. So yeah, you'd asked whether the covenants were always taken for religious reasons. Well, they often were, and I'll maybe return to that in just a moment. It might be worth exploring the various ways the term covenant could be understood and deployed. The term derived from the Latin fodus, 
and it could imply uh, an oath that is uh, an oral pact or a compact or a, a written document that could actually be signed or subscribed. But I think there are sort of some key differences. So they were more than simply vows or promises as they tended to involve other contracting parties. And there were kind of more than oaths in the sense that God was not just a witness, but actually often called as a party to a covenant. So there was, as we saw with Knox earlier, you know, major implications for breaking these. No pressure. <laughs> exactly. Once you make one, you better not break it. Yeah. In practice, I think the term covenant could actually cover a wide range of pactions and agreements, and it could define a wide range of relationships. Um, and we'll probably see that throughout the course of this episode. They could be personal or they could be corporate. They could involve families, communities or nations. And they could serve a range of you know, religious, constitutional, political, economic, diplomatic, military purposes. Um, you know, it's a notoriously slippery concept where, for example, um, contractual theories of government, national covenants with God, an individual's expression of their faith and true belief could be and often were conflated. Likewise, covenants could be de- deployed as sort of treaties or, or contracts although the latter threw up uh, sort of theological complications in the sense that they placed or seemed to place conditions or limitations in God's omnipotence. So I think we can say that, above all, the term was utilised uh, ideologically because it carried that sort of theological and legal weight. You know, these were not to be entered into lightly, as you've kind of said. Let's talk a minute about some of the major religious covenants being birthed during this time period. How does the concept of covenanting relate to covenant theology, the Reformation, and defining religious covenants like the covenant of grace or the covenant of works? Sure. Again, this is quite a complex question, a topic that's generated in extensive literature. So I'm going to try and unpick some of the relations you've described as briefly as I possibly can. As we've seen, the term covenant's broad, it's flexible, it's malleable, and as you've suggested, it could refer to what we became known as federal or covenant theology. Covenant theology was and is, in essence, a systemization of the Calvinist doctrine of election. So that's the idea that God has predestined who on earth shall be saved, and they are known as the elect. And at the same time, it's also attempting to provide a framework for understanding the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments. So to try and give you some working definitions, I'll keep this as concise as I possibly can. The notion of a covenant of works refers to the covenant made between God and Adam in the Garden of Eden. So God offers Adam a perfect eternal life, uh, provided he doesn't violate God's commandments. But as no doubt you and your listeners are aware, Adam does break that covenant and thus condemns all of mankind. In Reformed theology, this episode is known as the fall and underpins the belief that people are born into sin and incapable of faith without the intervention of the Holy Spirit. The covenant of grace, meanwhile, refers to the promise of salvation to those who have faith in Jesus Christ, in essence. So in short, Christ fulfills the covenant of works on mankind's behalf, eh, while an individual, by covenanting with God, eh, proves their election and thus realises the predestined will of God. And it's this personal covenant that gives tangible expression to that key tenet of the Protestant Reformation, that believers are justified through their faith. 
in terms of where this is coming from, I think covenant theology is more of a later 16th century development than an earlier one. It's most commonly associated with Zacharias Ursinus, who's best known as the principal author of the influential Heidelberg Catechism in Scotland. Although covenantal ideas had been integral to the to Scottish Reformed thinking since the early days of the Reformation, the deception of covenant theology in the strict sense was led by someone known as Robert, well, not known as he was, Robert Rollick, principal of the University of Edinburgh, which had been founded in 1583. I would say it's really in the 17th century, however, that we're seeing the sort of widespread influence of covenant theology in British Protestantism. Two of the prominent theologians of this time period instrumental in defining doctrinal covenants for Protestants was Heinrich Bullinger and a bit later, John Calvin. What were their influences on the idea of covenants and how did their works influence the Westminster Confession of Faith that would be drafted in the late 17th century? Okay, I begin by saying that I'm probably not the best person to be asking about Bullinger or Calvin in particular. I'd contend that their direct influence and ideas of covenanting in the 17th century might not be as profound as we think. And that maybe be even argue, maybe argue that their influence might be better framed as indirect. Although English and Scottish Protestants were by and large Calvinists in their theology, uh, the term reformed in a capital R might be preferable in that it sort of decenters the influence of any one particular theologian and maybe better captures the idea of a tradition that is the production of many hands on the Westminster Confession. I mean, Calvin and Calvinism is a broad influence in the sense that it adopts what are known as the five points of Calvinism. So that's total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. And some of these ideas I've sort of discussed when mentioning or talking through covenant theology, so I won't go over these again just now. It's difficult to talk about the Westminster Confession without really providing a bit more of its context and you know, how it was produced in the first place. This, I'm afraid, again, it's a very complex series of events. Uh, but I do think it's worth taking the time to talk through these because I think it's in this period, the mid-17th century, when we can see that covenanting's clearly become embedded in both Scottish and English religious and political cultures. And actually, we're also seeing it in the wider Reformed world whether in continental Europe or across the Atlantic. So to, again, try and keep this as brief as I possibly can, you know, we'd heard earlier about the Union of Crowns under James VI and I. Well, in 1625, James is succeeded by his son, Charles I, who, within a decade, uh, managed to foment quite significant political, economic and religious grievances throughout his kingdoms. Uh, in Scotland, uh, there's protest, rioting, petitioning in response to his religious policies. And then this culminates in the drafting and signing of the National Covenant in 1638, a hugely document in Scottish history. The National Covenant generates a, a remarkable, really genuinely remarkable mass subscription campaign that involved all classes of society. And it was the vehicle for both a political revolution and a so-called Second Reformation of the Church of Scotland. In confronting this situation, Charles had also to contend with disaffection in England. And when civil war breaks out in 1642, the Scottish Covenanters offer military assistance to the English parliamentarians in exchange for a Presbyterianised Church of England. And this alliance is consummated by something known as the Solemn League and Covenant in 1643. 
and then an, an assembly of English divines with Scottish commissioners in attendance is then set up to reform the English church. The assembly was, I think it's fair to say, far from united and various aspects of doctrine, worship, uh, discipline, church government. But without going into immense detail, it's this body that eventually produces the Westminster Confession, as well as a, a directory for worship and catechisms. The Confession has a very short shelf life in England, uh, but it's adopted in Scotland in 1647 and then readopted in 1690. And it becomes the doctrinal standard of the Church of Scotland, the most dissenting Presbyterian churches. And in fact, it remains a key reference point for many Presbyterian churches today. For the uninitiated, what is the negative confession of 1581? And what impact did that have on society during Shakespeare's lifetime? The negative confession was, in essence, an anti-Catholic band. And it's signed initially by the young James VI of Scotland and the, the royal household. But it's later distributed uh, for nationwide subscription. Uh, it was drafted by the household pastor, John Craig. and. It represents a response to the suspected Catholicism of James's cousin and advisor, Esme Stewart, uh, who had a particularly close relationship with and has potential influence over the king. And thereafter, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland was required to obtain subscription from parishioners across the country. I think it was the late Ted Cowan observed uh, that it was first described as a covenant in 1586 by the minister of Harrington, James Carmichael. And it was ordered to be subscribed again by the King's Privy Council in 1590 in response to fears of um, basically various missionary incursions by Jesuits and Catholic priests. In terms of what makes it particularly noteworthy, one of the key elements of the confession is this repudiation of the Pope's, quote, worldly monarchy and wicked hierarchy. And this is basically used by Scottish Presbyterians to argue for the outright rejection and abolition of episcopacy, uh, that is church government by bishops. While bishops were retained in the Church of England, although not without comment, the question of how the Reformed Church of Scotland ought to be governed led to the emergence and evolution of distinct Presbyterian and Episcopalian platforms or traditions, and they themselves fragment actually in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. In Scotland, it's ecclesiology, in other words, ideas regarding the nature and structure of the church that are far more frequently controversial than theology you know, relating to ideas regarding the nature of God. And the negative confession becomes a key text in that long-running and often heated debate. So I think I'd maybe be tempted to say that the, it's the afterlife of the negative confession that's arguably more important than its immediate impact in Shakespeare's lifetime. It provides inspiration for later subscription campaigns like the National Covenant, it's foundational to the National Covenant, and in fact, it's even incorporated into that document. And it becomes part of a, a narrative developed by Scottish Presbyterians over several generations, uh, which they're using to assert themselves as in continuity with the Scottish Reformation and upholders of the so-called true Church of Scotland. So absolutely a pivotal moment in the development of these sections of, of religion, but maybe not felt the full impact of until after it had been created. I don't think they would have anticipated quite how much of an impact it would have longer term. Now, I understand from what you've shared with us here that taking a covenant is a solemn, 
formal experience. And it's, but I think it has a defined process for what was supposed to occur when you are taking a covenant due probably to the seriousness of what you're doing when you're taking a covenant. So what are the specific actions, gestures, or processes involved in taking a covenant for the 16th and 17th century? That's a really great question. In a Scottish context, it's actually attracted a lot of really interesting work in recent years. Um, I'll apologise now to anybody I miss, but I'm, I'm aware that Karen Bowie, Laura Doak, Paul Goatman, Nathan Hood, Chris Langley, Jimmy McDougall, and myself, Laura Stewart, and Margot Todd, several others have been working in this. And then in an English context, you've got Ted Valence and John Walter writing on this extensively. So yeah, your question mentioned defined processes uh, that were followed when taking a covenant. And although this is partly true, I think I maybe want to start off by saying that um, it's important to highlight the extent to which how to find these processes were is maybe more open to debate. So okay. in Scotland, local and regional church court records, although they reveal sort of procedural patterns, they also reveal quite a significant degree of variation and adaptability across congregations and communities. And in fact, it's worth noting that the National Covenant uh, was not accompanied with sort of strict instructions on how this subscription process was supposed to be conducted. This does change with the Solemn League and Covenant, which subscribed in 1643 and again in 1648. And here, explicit instructions were actually drafted and disseminated to the lower church courts. And they pay particular attention to things like the sort of preparative steps prior to the ceremony, uh, the symbolism and meaning of the gestures and actions to be performed during the ceremony, and then also the, the words and rhetoric that's accompanying them. So I think although it is reasonable to argue that there's a greater level of uniformity achieved in this way, and you can see that the religious and political leaders are clearly trying to manage the process as far as they can and trying to can sort of control the message behind covenanting, there still remains plenty of scope for variety, for non-compliance, and even for outright subversion. And there's a great example of Walter Bob Campbell, minister of Tranent. He's hauled before a presbytery, and he basically says he supported the National Covenant as a godly work, he says, but he never understood what the Solemn League and Covenant was. And then makes you wonder to what extent his congregation would have understood what it meant either. It's hard to stick to something that you don't know what it even is. Exactly. But I think I'll, I'll still try to give you something like the, the ambiguity aside, the one gesture that you see that is common in most public performances of a covenant being taken, whether individually or indeed collectively, was that of uplifted hands. So a couple of examples come to mind. At the General Assembly of 1596, a very famous meeting, um, we hear of the clergy raising their hands to, quote, testify they're entering in a new league with God. And this meeting has a kind of revivalist flavour. And it also demonstrates the penetration of the covenant theology that we've been discussing earlier. Also, at the resubscription of the Solemn League and Covenant in the parish of Sedis and Fife in 1648, we're told that the covenant was, quote, solemnly sworn by the minister and, quote, all the people, men and women standing, on their feet, swaying with uplifted hands and all engaging themselves of all the duties contained in the covenant. Final thing maybe I'll say in this question is that what to me makes covenanting so fascinating in Scotland and Britain more generally is that there is emerging here covenants that are actually subscribable. 
In other words, covenanting involving not only a kind of oral or oral and gestural components, but actually later involved tangible written documents, whether that's personal covenants penned and subscribed in spiritual diaries or the larger scale corporate practices of the National Covenant and Solemn League and Covenant. I think that's really what makes this so fascinating in the period. Does this mean that if there are paintings from this period of the 16th and 17th century, was it possible for an artist to represent people in certain positions or with certain objects or certain sets of clothing where the viewer would look at the painting and go, oh, this group of people are participating in taking a covenant the same way we might see somebody, you know, a marriage ceremony is recognizable or a contract signing or being in a courtroom is recognizable as something legal is going on there. Are there enough definable elements of taking a covenant that it's visually recognizable that way? That's an interesting question. I think how I would answer it is the paintings we do have of covenanting actually all stem much later. There's a lot of paintings in the 19th century, particularly in Scotland, uh, celebrating the, the kind of covenanting history that goes back to the 16th and 17th centuries. And I think it's sort of trying to tap into that tradition at a time when the churches of Scotland are, you know, confronting various threats and they're kind of going back and imagining a kind of golden time when it looked like the nation was united and they were united together in these covenants. So you're actually getting um, painted representations of covenanting then, but I'm not sure in the period itself you're getting much in the way of sort of visual representations. Maybe one place you would see them is in some of the printed works you see. There's a kind of explosion of print in the mid-17th century, particularly during the 1640s, and there are some illustrations of people swearing with uplifted hands. And in fact, I can think of one in particular where there is a small printed image of a group of people all with their hands in the air as part of a a piece of polemic that's basically trying to promote the covenant. Now, bringing all of this history of covenanting directly to Shakespeare's plays, in Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, the character Petruchio says, quote, let specialties be therefore drawn between us that covenants may be kept on either hand, end quote. Neil, what is the covenanting process being demonstrated with this quote? Why is Petruchio talking about covenants being kept on either hand? And what specialties is he describing? Okay, that's a really interesting passage. Thanks for sharing that. I think above all, the scenes demonstrating the the contractual nature of the covenanting process, and then maybe also emphasising the demands it's placing on each of the contracting parties. Um, That covenants may be kept on either hand, it sort of strongly suggests the mutuality of the arrangement. In other words, that there are obligations and that these are being shared by either side. And there's also the faintest indication of uh, the equality of the arrangement that the the parties may be of equal status with reciprocal responsibilities, although you might be able to correct me on that, whether that's actually the case. The other parts that stood out from the passage were the plural covenants, actually. It's also worth highlighting, I think. I could be reading too much into this, but it brings with it the suggestion that although there are two parties involved, they may not necessarily be observing the same obligations or duties or responsibilities. A singular covenant would suggest the parties were signing up to the same terms, but 
the plural makes me wonder whether the terms of the arrangement may have been framed sort of specifically for each party. So one party's promising to do something and then the other party's promising to do something else in return. So there's like a sort of mutual exchange of obligations, duties or responsibilities, but they may not necessarily be one and the same. Turning to the point that covenants were being kept, as we've already discussed, this sort of brings with it the implication of the solemnity and longevity of the proposed arrangement, or at least the intention of its longevity. You know, this doesn't sound like a particularly sort of flash in the pan agreement, and it's not being entered into too hastily, given the... It's not a handshake between friends. It's something else entirely. Yeah. What was the other? It was the specialties. So finally in the specialties, I mean, I think in a nutshell, these sound sound to me like the sort of terms of the contract. And they're they're going to structure the relationship that's being formalized by the covenants. And in fact, that word formalized, I think is quite important here. There may have been a pre-existing but altogether vaguer relationship between the parties. And perhaps this has led to misunderstandings between them with potentially serious consequences, that this relationship has now been given formality by the drafting and taking of covenants. So covenanting is ensuring, in other words, that there's a, a sort of mutual understanding between the parties of their roles, of their responsibilities, and the relationship between one another. Another example from Shakespeare's plays related to covenanting comes from Henry VI, part one. Henry VI uses the language of covenant to ask that his emissary, Lord Suffolk, go to France and, quote, agree to all covenant, end quote, as part of the process of getting Lady Margaret to come back and be his queen. Neil, explain what covenant means in this context. Were covenants part of formal political contracts between countries, or is this word being used in the same way as we might use promise today? I mean, I think you could say that covenant is being used here as a synonym for a treaty or a political arrangement. When Henry tells Suffolk to agree to all covenant, he is effectively telling him to agree to all terms of the contract that's being drawn up to make Lady Margaret his queen. Again, I might be reading too much into this, but it does appear or does not appear actually that Suffolk has been given much room to negotiate. Uh, agree to all covenant feels like quite a bald phrase. It sort of suggests to me that Henry seems to be prepared to accept any terms that are laid down as part of the process. I mean, I appreciate it's a short quote, but it doesn't seem like from this quote that he's articulated any red lines that he might not cross. He's not laid down any terms that he's not prepared to observe. He's not even provided any of his own terms. Whatever it takes kind of blanket statement there. It has that feel to it. I mean, there's obviously the possibility that he trusts Suffolk to know what these are and that these don't require expressing. But on the basis of that quote, he sounds desperate to close. So in my view, basically, we're given the impression that Henry desires to secure this agreement at all costs and to close it urgently. As you've pointed out for us during our conversation today, this there's just a wealth of history to explore here from the theology to the legal and even military contexts of covenants. I know there's a whole world of history here that we can and should explore if we want to know more about the history of covenanting from Shakespeare's lifetime. So I want to ask you, as the topic expert here, where should we begin? What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Okay, it's certainly tricky to to pick out just three. I think I would start with uh, an article by Jane Dawson, and it's simply titled Covenanting in 16th Century Scotland. And I would say this is the kind of best place to start. I was fortunate to guest edit a Scottish historical review, a special issue called Covenants and Covenanting, and Jane very kindly contributed this article. 
yeah, as a kind of first stop shop for understanding 16th century covenanting, this is probably the best place to go. Um, and Jane's also contributed another brilliant essay called Bonding Religious Allegiance and Covenanting. And that was for a, a, an essay collection in honour of the late Jenny Wormald. And it's edited by Steve Boardman and Julian Goodair. So certainly start with Jane's work in 16th century covenanting. But a kind of longer or kind of long durée perspective, I'd recommend Scott Spurlock's essay titled Polity, Discipline and Theology, the Importance of the Covenant in Scottish Presbyterianism. So Scott's a colleague of mine at the University of Glasgow. And this really excellent essay, I mean, it basically does exactly what it says in the tin. It locates the idea of covenanting at the heart of Scottish Presbyterian ideology and practice from the Reformation to the turn of the 18th century. Uh, and in fact, Scott also contributed to that same special issue in Covenants and Covenanting, uh, in which he talked about the Irish perspective, which we haven't had a chance to talk too much about today. But if you're interested in the Irish dimension, he wrote an article on the Solemn League and Covenant in Ulster. So yeah, with those two being Scottish-focused, I'll maybe make the third more about the English context. So I mentioned Ted Valence earlier. He's a professor of history at Roehampton University, and his book, Revolutionary England and the National Covenant, really an essential resource to understand covenanting in England. It is his early work certainly traced the development of national covenants, oaths of allegiance, state oaths uh, from about the mid 16th century through to the late 17th. I'm sure if you Google Ted's name, you'll find a range of his articles and books because I would say when I was first exploring this topic, his work was immensely important to me. Thank you so much for sharing these. Particularly with dense topics, it's really helpful to have a starting place for where where to begin when we want to dive in and learn more. Now, we'll place links to these resources, more on Neil's work and images of some of the paintings we referred to today, as well as other visual elements of both the people, places, and even documents for today's episode. So make sure you hang on until the end of the episode today for the URL for the show notes that goes with today's episode. Neil, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. I basically struggle to answer questions like these, so I'm just going to simply cheat. I'm sorry. It's always fun to ask people, um, especially scholars, this question because they're like, can I take a library? I need a library of things. (laughs) Almost every time. (laughs) Absolutely. And you don't want to leave anybody out. So I'm just going to cheat and say, here's what I've been reading lately. Okay. Um, So I've recently finished reading Herman Hesse's The Glass Bead Game, which I'd recommend to anybody. It's a fascinating read. I've been dipping in and out of the 50th anniversary special issue of the journal Political Phoebe. A lot of these articles are open access, so your listeners will be able to read these if they wanted. And they're really genuinely incredible because they're written from this sort of imagined futures perspective. I've also been dipping in and out of volume of short stories by J.G. Ballard. And I very recently started Richard Burke's enormous intellectual history of Edmund Burke. I suspect that's going to take me a few months to get through. Well, not only would you be well set up on your deserted island with these selections, but I think we all have reason to dive in and explore these. When you're talking about them being from the perspective of imagined futures, are we talking positive imagined futures or more like Orwellian imagined futures? You could probably argue there's a bit of a dystopian element to them. Yeah, I think it's it's getting political theorists to think about what would political theory look like in 50 or 100 or 1,000 or 2,000 years in the future. And it's really fascinating seeing 
the very different ways they've answered that question. And um, so yeah, I would really recommend those if you're interested. So just for fun, if you'd like to check those out, we'll have links to these in the show notes as well. So Neil, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? At the moment, I currently work uh, as a knowledge exchange associate uh, in the College of Arts at the University of Glasgow. So I do things like help develop interdisciplinary collaboration, uh, external partnerships. Uh, I work in things like research impact, uh, research culture, supporting grant applications and things like that. So that's kind of the, the day job. Uh, but I do still have a hand in scholarship. I've got an essay titled Scottish History, Presbyterian Culture and the Right to Bear Arms, uh, shortly to be published by Oxford University Press, recollection titled New Histories of Gun Rights and Regulation. It was edited, or an edition was led by Duke University Centre for Firearms Law. And we'd like to just quickly thank Joseph Blocker, Jake Charles and Daryl Miller for inviting me to contribute to that. Um, I'm also currently working on an article tentatively titled Legal Retribution, Financial Compensation and Political Accountability, Political Legal Thought in the Scottish Revolution of 1688-90. And I'm co-authoring an article on the judicial philosophy of James Dalrymple by Count Stair, with my colleague in the School of Law, Stephen Bogle. We'll place links to these in the show notes as well for today. Neil, thank you so much for helping us condense the massive topic of covenanting in the 16th and 17th century, as well as specifically the history from Scotland down into an episode today so that we could have just a slice of knowledge of this particular part of Shakespeare's lifetime. Thank you for sharing it with us and for giving of your time to be here today. This has been an an interesting conversation and I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thank you again for having me. If you enjoyed our show today, be sure to let us know about it. Please drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. Now, I promised you in the show notes, we would include links to the images and the resources and all of the good stuff that we talked about today, including some of these documents and the specific covenants that we referenced. If you want to dive into this history even further with visuals and links and more history, archival information and all of that stuff, the show notes is the place to be. You can find the show notes for today's episode at CassidyCash.com slash EP267. That's CassidyCash.com slash episode 267. If you enjoy diving in deep with 16th and 17th century history the way that we did today, and you want to know more about what it was like to live in turn of the 17th century England the way Shakespeare would have lived it, then consider becoming a patron of our show. There are over 150 additional episodes available in the back catalog for that Shakespeare life, and you can listen to as many as you want from the patrons-only RSS feed, and each of those episodes has in-depth show notes that are also available just for patrons. In addition to our back catalog, patrons who support the show are treated to behind-the-scenes extras, bonus history tidbits, including sneak peeks at upcoming guests, the chance to submit your own questions to be asked during an episode, and so many other bonuses. You can explore all the benefits of being a patron and join us today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.